Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm joined by Mariana Ritchie, who's an assistant professor in music history at the University of Massachusetts. And we're going to be talking about composing capital, classical music in the neoliberal era. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm delighted to be talking about this book. Um, It's both really, really interesting really kind of theoretically rich and engaged. Um, It's also uh, on a personal level about, you know, a genre uh, of music that I'm really interested in. Um, But it really kind of, I think, offers an important challenge, uh, not just to that genre, but also actually to the way we think about culture more generally and the role of, of culture in contemporary society. And I guess that the starting point is is maybe to hear a little bit about um, why you're interested in, in kind of writing this, uh, I guess, kind of um, sort of critical engagement um, with, with classical music um, in this, as you call it, neoliberal era. Yeah. So personally, I think it has a lot to do with my personal background because unlike a lot of musicologists, I would say, although I think these demographics are changing lately, but I don't come from a classical music background really at all. I spent most of my life, my young adulthood, playing and touring and basically like super DIY, like indie bands. And then I went to grad school and became a musicologist. And I specialized in 19th century, you know, canonical classical music somehow. So I have this really weird Um, hybrid musical life where it feels like the two parts traditionally haven't overlapped at all. And um, so I, I, I like, even at times, there's been times when I have not wanted to be one, but I've always kind of felt like an outsider. You know, I don't, I don't come from a music school. I don't really understand that world. It's, I've been like coming to it more like anthropologically. So basically after finishing my PhD, which was on Berlioz, I started, I stumbled upon this phenomenon at the time in contemporary US art music that was being called indie classical. And so we'll probably talk about more about this later, but basically, you know, it's all these young conservatory graduates who were making and performing music outside of traditional classical music institutions and outside of those kind of traditional career tracks. And they, at that time, were calling what they were doing indie. They were calling it indie classical as a specific reference to the indie rock of the 90s that I was really familiar with from my personal life. So this interested me. It it felt like, you know, I I had never really imagined these two sides of my world combining. And so initially, I was pretty uncritical of it. I was just like, wow, this is so cool. This is so interesting. But then around that same time, um, uh, I also started reading a lot about neoliberalism, um, thanks to work by some colleagues in my field who write about neoliberalism. There's a really good article by Andrea Moore about entrepreneurship in musical schools and this 
musicologist David Blake, who writes about neoliberalism and musicology. So I was like, oh, reading about this, like more kind of critical take on things. And this word was coming into the mainstream thanks to the 2008 economic crisis um, over here in, in the U.S. and the way it revealed some pretty ugly facts about how power and money actually function in this country and, you know, increasingly around the world. <clears throat> so I then started pretty voraciously reading, you know, work by in critical theory and by leftist political economists and all these anthropological critiques of global capitalism. And I had one of these aha moments where like the veil is suddenly ripped away and you, you can kind of like see things clearly. And I became really interested in the way that these um, keywords and concepts from neoliberalism were being deployed in the arts press and in these musicians' promotional materials and, and they're like how they were being figured as revolutionary and as socially exciting uh, in part, and, and it's not like across the board, but in part by appropriating terms and concepts from um, you know, what I see as more oppositional musical cultures like punk and indie and, and DIY. So I suddenly just kind of, it, it all came together as this like interest in those tensions and contradictions in contemporary U.S. classical music culture. And once I went down that path, it was like peeling an onion. The more layers I peeled off, the more stuff was underneath. And so, you know, the book took shape kind of organically as this critical, like, I think of it as discourse analysis. It's, it's an attempt to pick apart words and values and ideologies and rhetoric and, and to try and kind of see what they're really doing and see how we're, we're being sold ideas that seem revolutionary or at least, you know, progressive on their surface, but that are often, I argue, I think, pretty reactionary and power serving. So that's, that's sort of the origin story of, of how I came to this project. Yeah, I, I guess within that you've got, you know, you've laid out quite a few of the, the examples we're going to uh, talk about, but also you've got, you know, various ideas about, you know, classical musicians being more entrepreneurial, being, you know, mm -hmm. innovative, disruptive, creative, all of the sort of like, you know, key contemporary um, symbolic language uh, that we'd associate with um, our, you know, kind of modern, and again, you know, you know this term neoliberal era and and be, because you've sort of set the scene a bit I, i'm interested in um I, I don't know whether you'd call it like you know a kind of theory of music or you know an ideological position with regard to music that suggests that classical music would have um the kind of relationship with society whether it's a certain autonomy um or a certain special uh, social status that it would be able to um, underpin projects that are about entrepreneurship, innovation, okay. creativity, disruption, etc. Like, what's what's kind of so special about about classical music? Um, well, yeah, classical music is very weird, and in, in some senses, it, it, it isn't special. Like, you know, neoliberalism and generally, like, you know, marketing and branding, it scoops up all kinds of stuff. It it can use all kinds of things to. Um, promote certain ideas or products and classical music in that sense is often just just one of a vast array of uh you know value systems and sounds and and um images that gets appropriated but i did kind of try to spend time in the book 
answering this question of, you know, if there are things that are special about classical music in this sense, in this critical framework, you know, what are they? And I, I do think like one, one of the themes of the book is the way that a lot of the projects that I critique, um, in this world of contemporary classical music, a lot of the projects that are trying to, in their terms, like save classical music and revitalize it and reinvigorate it, um, how so many of them uh, tend to be oriented toward uh, like puncturing and really tearing down notions of musical autonomy and autonomy in general. And it, it, that kind of, um, that kind of puncturing gesture appears in lots of different ways in these different projects, some more obvious than others, but it is like they are attacking the very foundations of what this thing we call classical music even is and how it's been conceived and valued across time, which there's definitely a way to see that as revolutionary and exciting and good and beneficial because you know a lot of that edifice of classical music is is disgusting and and propping up of power and money and and things like that so i'm sympathetic towards that like knee-jerk or you know i shouldn't say knee-jerk but that um impulse to tear down and let something new kind of flower in its place but the more i started thinking about it the more and, and you know I'm really interested in contradictions and tensions and kind of trying to look at these things a little bit dialectically, like putting them in conflict with each other and seeing what ideas can kind of come out of that, um, that encounter. And so autonomy for me became a really slippery argument that I'm, I'm not sure I'm even now still, I'm not satisfied that I've really pinned down um, because it is this kind of innately, contradictory, ambivalent concept, where on the one hand, you have this notion of aesthetic autonomy that classical music and my field musicology were initially really founded on. And like a lot of the practices and analytical models and value systems of the field and of the music generally grew out of this notion of aesthetic autonomy, meaning, you know, all these 19th century Germans who, who laid out the way of understanding and, and and valuing a lot of this music, basically explaining why Beethoven is the best music ever written. There's this extreme emphasis on the idea that this music is organic, meaning that all its parts are related to the whole. And over the, over the century, that kind of like concretizes into a pretty fixed ideology where we talk about musical beauty and we understand music in terms of a, a given composition's adherence to its own internal logic. And so this idea that like musical beauty doesn't derive from culture or people or stories or our own feelings, even it's just its own self, it's its own internal structure. So you can see in this sense that what autonomy means is, um, or you can see that how it's related to the idea that implicitly the best kinds of music are these works that answer only to themselves that they don't speak to the world, that they don't have anything to say to the world, and they don't need anything from the world. So this is this founding idea of our field, this kind of like rigorous formalism. So that's one way we've thought about autonomy, and it's part of what is being torn down in a lot of these contemporary projects. But another way of thinking of autonomy has more to do with material culture and the idea that this kind of music is, you know, quote, autonomous in the sense that it stands apart from 
society, it, it, by standing apart from society, it's like removing itself from capitalism to a certain extent. This is Adorno's whole, you know, idea. And the two senses of the term are obviously related. So Adorno, for example, was really invested in this idea that certain composers, by trying to write music that was aesthetically autonomous, sort of accidentally created the possibility for a musical work to stand slightly outside of its social reality, which gave it the ability to depict or, you know, reflect that social reality. And because, you know, the social reality he was interested in was that of late capitalism, he was, there's this really, um, there's this idea that by striving to be self-contained, this music can demonstrate to us that freedom is possible, basically, to kind of paraphrase, that like freedom could one day become a social reality if we're able to even vaguely uh, construct it in this like autonomous musical form. And so for Adorno, that's like the only only place that hopefulness can lie. So when I say it's tricky and, and kind of became over time, like, the sort of hidden heart of the book, this is what I mean. Because on the one hand, you have these notions of autonomy that were created by, you know, racist, misogynist guys who were obsessed with Germany. And the music they uplifted as embodying these values is the canonical classical music that is at the center of every music school and department in the country. And which is, you know, and a lot of that edifice, it seems increasingly problematic. And it's what a lot of the um, projects in my book are oriented against they're oriented towards disrupting it. Um, but on the other hand, you have this figuration of autonomy as the outgrowth of an urgently felt yearning for something that stands outside of capitalist logic, this, this yearning to safeguard something, some product of humanity, some possibility of life being otherwise, um, which you know is a desire I understand and deeply share. So that's a kind of key contradiction in the book and it remains kind of slippery to me because like I said, you know, I am sympathetic with some of the basic uh, orientations of some of the people in my book, but then I think that the ways that they go about or like they, the critiques that they level at this edifice are not the critiques that I share, which is a strange kind of place to, to um, view them from, if that makes sense. I mean, we'll, we'll un, un, unpack them. And there are loads of examples in the book, but just as you were talking, I, I thought basically about the end uh, or, the, or the penultimate um, chapter of the book and the way that some of these, um, you know, contradictions or almost kind of like, you know, perversions of that uh, first form of the autonomous ideology play out. And, and you know, the idea of, and, and you, know, you write about this, um, this use of Beethoven's fifth by Intel mm-hmm. as, you know, and, and the phrase that really stood out to me in that chapter was like, but, you know, keeping the good part of the fifth, <laughs> not <laughs> kind of boring music stuff, but, but, you know, the bit people know from the advert. Yeah. Right. And, you know, not to jump around too much, but, but it'd be really interesting to actually, uh, while we're on this question about the kind of, uh, ideologies, um, uh, associated with classical music to hear about how, you know, the, the kind of, uh, if I might use the term, the kind of uber classical music uh, figure of Beethoven mm-hmm. um, is basically kind of, you know, now a series of what is it like four corporate notes uh, <laughs> yeah. in a, a noise you're meant to associate with your computer switching on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I love that 
Beethoven recomposition from the Intel commercial because it's sort of the heart of everything. In fact, there was a period where I was trying to advocate for making like um, that the the um, the recomposition of the opening motive of Beethoven's Fifth, the cover of the book. I was like, it says everything, but no one I showed it to understood. It was clearly like something just inside my own brain. But um, the combination of the super recognizable opening da, 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 of Beethoven's Fifth um, with those four notes of Intel's logo, dun, 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 um, and how they they intertwine and like how the the Beethoven's motive throughout that recomposed version that accompanies the Intel advertisement that I write about throughout that whole you know five minute or four minute truncated version that they created the Beethoven being being just insistently like answered and solved and kind of contained by the, the, the closure of the Intel logo was just so productive and interesting. I just couldn't, I couldn't stop watching that ad and thinking about it. Um, and yeah, I love, you know, the idea of Beethoven as the Uber, the Uber classical music guy, basically, which is really true, you know, for, so that builds off of everything I just said about autonomy and those ideas from the 19th century about that was trying to uphold certain types of music meaning, you know, initially music Beethoven and music like Beethoven's trying to uphold that music as somehow an expression of transcendence, of universal value, of timeless, you know, timeless expressions of like the highest heights that human nature is capable of even uh, achieving. This is how these people in the 19th century wrote about Beethoven and about music like his Fifth Symphony. And so in the Intel chapter, I was really interested in putting in kind of interrogating another contradiction, which is, you know, neoliberalism is relentlessly focused on the future. It hates the past, actually, in a lot of ways. Marketing, Intel's marketing is all about just changing stuff solely because it's old. Oh, you know, fireworks have been around forever. That's stupid. Let's have drones make fireworks now. And um, you know, so this idea that like something just by virtue of being traditional and old fashioned is automatically bad and needs to be disrupted. That's like the, you know, at the heart of neoliberal thinking about how capitalism works and how products works and how how businesses should function and how we all should function really in our daily lives. And so at first it seems very strange that they're using Beethoven, you know, this icon of ancient old fashioned, you know, kind of insular elitist high culture to sell uh, things like robots and drones. But um, until you realize that they need that, they kind of like need this uh, impression of creativity and transcendence and universal value and being good for society. They need those impressions to kind of adhere to their products because, you know, in reality, the work that these tech corporations do in the world is incredibly disruptive of social life all over the globe. And, and, you know, as I dig into in the chapter, you know, a lot of the stuff on display at this big keynote presentation that Intel gave at the Consumer Electronics Showcase in 2016, a lot of the technology that was on display, it was all about oh, you know, thanks to Intel's technology, I can explore my human creativity and I can make art and, 
you know, uh, so it was all about that. It was all of this good stuff that, te- that all this technology makes possible. But a lot of those examples of tech didn't make any sense. Like I write about the cocktail dress that you wear that can sense when your body is flooded with adrenaline and then it extends these wings behind you. And everyone's like, yes, that's so amazing. They're all applauding. But I was thinking, you know, who would, what is that dress for? Who would want that? Like you're at a party and then your dress tells everyone that you're terrified. You know, it doesn't make any sense. And when you actually scratch into that and ask, you know, what is this for? The obvious answer is that it's all about the U.S. military. And in fact, Intel's own public website makes that really clear. Oh, our products, we're excited for all these partnerships with the U.S. military where all of these drones and motion sensing technology that we're celebrating uh, on like the consumer side of things as enabling human creativity are actually put to work expanding the surveillance state and mass incarceration and drone warfare and, you know, what the website calls our challenging environments in Iraq and Syria and Yemen. And so that for me, like was another moment of clicking into place, like, oh, that's why they're using Beethoven. It's because they want us to really be fixated on the human creativity stuff. And by like associating their products with the stuff that is pretty unproblematically in a lot of realms, um, you know, still stands in for this, the highest of culture and the highest expression of humanity uh, enables that. I mean, it's like a pretty powerful marketing rhetoric and you can see that it's powerful. Like the, you know, the, the Intel keynote had thousands and thousands of people in a live audience and they were just standing ovation after standing ovation. So it's very effective actually. And, um, yeah, so I don't know, I think I got off track, but those are my thoughts. No, it, it, it's perfect, actually, because it sets up um, several um, of the, again, relationships and, and contradictions that are in the book. And, um, you, you know, you, you discuss uh, the, the composer slash DJ, uh, Mason Bates, as a, as a really clear example of this relationship between, you know, supposed forms of innovation and disruption and, you know, large scale mm-hmm. corporate tech uh, giants. But I wonder if we might like sort of go broader uh, with your critique and come right back to, to where you started with this idea of indie classical, uh, because I was mm-hmm. I was both really struck by that term because it's, you know, in some ways is like a crazy juxtaposition of uh, two, you know, almost kind of highly oppositional uh, musical uh, genres mm-hmm. or um, cultures. But particularly, actually, the way indie classical is suffused, unfortunately, um, with these ideas about, you know, kind of being an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. um, entrepreneurial capitalism, and actually very little of the ideas of, you know, genuinely kind of formal, um, oppositional, alternative models um, to the kind of entrepreneurial capitalism that um, ends up being put forward by these key players in the indie classical scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for them. They're just trying to survive like everybody. And they're kind of picking up on cultural trends in the broader culture that is, you know, trends like really seeing how much entrepreneurship and disruptive innovation um, and talking about, you know, tearing down old institutions and things like that, seeing how much those gestures are rewarded in the culture and like, how how um, 
uh, effective it can be to construct a brand for yourself around that, which in which the indie classical scene is, you know, a really great example of people who have successfully done that. And Mason Bates too, in a different way, he's not part of the same scene, but this, in both of those examples, it's sort of like this idea of, um, uh, you know, using contemporary formations like the internet or technology or, you know, um, to expand the barrier or break the barriers, expand the boundaries of how this music is normally performed or taught or composed. Um, and again, like, I think like, like all of the examples in the book, there's a lot to find compelling about that vision because, you know, like the idea that the Metropolitan Opera is just sort of, um, propped up by all of these billionaires is totally politically problematic. These, these indie classical people aren't wrong in kind of being critical of that. But to get back to your question, what I think is very important to really insist upon is that while critiquing those institutions, they actually are just kind of using these ideas of DIY and indie and um, grassroots and uh, you know, using technology to be more flexible and stuff like that, they're actually using them as very savvy, just kind of new business models. They aren't using them politically in the sense that those words, you know, initially meant in the 80s and 90s in the indie rock scene. So what you, you end up with this like strange dynamic where people who are, ha- have forged really successful, very well, um, um, rewarded brand identities for themselves by being uh, disruptors and outliers. And uh, the way we've always done music is stupid and the academy is stupid, but then they're rewarded by those same institutions. You know, they get commissions by major city orchestras and opera houses, or they get a professorship at Harvard. And um, so then you see that it wasn't really it wasn't actually as political as it sounded. And also the other reason it isn't as political as it sounds is the ways that it combines those sort of revolutionary terms from historically uh, oppositional or, or leftist movements with the keywords of neoliberalism. So, you know, all of a sudden we have revolutionary ideas about taking music out into the world and making it a part of the community, which you could, which like on their surface sound kind of like really political avant-garde ideas of engaging with everyday life and, you know, being amongst the workers and all of this stuff. But they use those kinds of um, words and ideas and values and they marry them with those of entrepreneurship and innovation and, um, you know, disruption in sort of like the business sense of the term. So, yeah, and I think that's, it's a, a good case study for how, I, I think that that's a feature of neoliberal rhetoric generally, is that it's always seeming revolutionary, but really all that it's doing is just selling us a, a more and more expanded version of the culture industry of, of you know, of capitalism. And I don't think any of the people in this scene are doing that on purpose, obviously, um, I mean, I think it's obvious to me, but they, but it, so the other thing it's a good example of is the way that ideology works, that you can think you're doing one thing, but really you're doing another thing. And, and, um, and I, I find that very alarming for all of us, for me too, you know, the idea that you could think that you were following one political agenda, but then actually you're accidentally serving another one. 
Um, so I, I guess part of the book is is that I would like these artists themselves to kind of try to think about some of those contradictions and be a little bit more self-critical. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that really shines through actually the um, the kind of structural critique that you're offering and and actually, you know, the, the, the kind of, uh, whether we'd call it, you know, empathy or, or, or sympathy, almost kind of, you know, a sense of solidarity with, you know, the, the struggles of making it in um, something as, you know, kind of potentially low paid and as, you know, highly competitive as contemporary classical music. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, with the awareness of the kind of social structures we have produce the sorts of outcomes that, you know, hopefully... Uh, nobody involved in whether it's you know the indie, indie classical scene or, or working with you know kind of tech giants would would start off wanting you know or would go into it thinking that that would be you know the kind of desired set of outcomes. Right. That said, though, I wonder. <laughs> I might have read this wrong, and obviously, like you know, feel free to uh, um, to, to kind of really uh, sort of stop me on this one, but. I sort of detected slightly less sympathy for um, this um, new mode of opera uh, around this thing called the industry, particularly actually the idea of uh, essentially kind of immersive experiences of opera that take place in a, you know, kind of highly gentrifying Los Angeles. And, and you know, as we talk now in the, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, and actually, you know, to an extent the kind of covid uh, moment with its you know highly kind of spatially uneven uh impact and it's you know um highly kind of uh, unequal um levels of, of impact in terms of hospitalizations death rates uh poorer communities uh, i think something like the industry and the, the idea of these you know kind of almost i don't know what you call them, you know almost kind of like tours of edgy areas to somehow you know make opera more contemporary i kind of got the vibe that you were you know sort of less sympathetic (laughs) to that no that's correct yeah i was it's so funny right before you asked that question i was like ah i kind of want to say something about how that brooklyn indie classical scene or those are the people i'm most sympathetic towards in the book because i am actually ragingly angry at other people in the book and so and then you asked that question um yeah i i think it's a lot harder to be sympathetic for the industry partially because of how much more um wildly more uh successful they have been than a lot of the people that i write about in that indie classical chapter you know the industry is just an an enormously profitable, um, enormously well rewarded force in in the world of opera in Los Angeles. You know, the director won a MacArthur grant. They have, you know, their their opera Hopscotch, which I write mostly about in that chapter, just received millions of dollars of corporate corporate donations and municipal subsidies. The city of Los Angeles subsidized it. You know, and so I, yeah, I have a lot less sympathy for people like that who then are saying, oh, we operate under a a totally DIY ethos um, and and our opera is for the world and it's for the people. And we're going to like give art to the entire city of Los Angeles, which is, you know, I'm paraphrasing their promotional materials. That's that's how they all read, taking opera out of the opera house and into the streets and making it this vibrant, you know, living part of Los Angeles culture. And 
you know, so even, first of all, even more so than with indie classical rhetoric, I really don't, I really don't understand what Yuval Sharon means when he says that the industry operates under an absolutely DIY ethos, when like, you know, the Bloomberg Corporation has underwritten what you're doing, and the, the city of Los Angeles is, um, is helping you like achieve your goals. I truly don't. So there's that, which which bothers me. But then you brought up gentrification. Yeah. And it's, it's probably the most um, unbearable tension in the book, I think is the one for me anyway, between the industry's promotional rhetoric and what actually happened at the performance of this opera. So this was just a brief summary. This was this opera that was performed in limousines um, all over the city. So you, if you, if you bought a ticket, you would be picked up by a limo and there'd be singing and acting happening inside the limo and the limo would drive all over Los Angeles and things were happening on the road, these incredibly precisely timed encounters. And then you'd, you'd be driven to, you know, one of LA's picturesque or diverse neighborhoods and you'd get out and there'd be a staged scene there with musicians all over the place. And it was all linked up by, you know, wireless headphones. And it was a, a totally elaborate epic undertaking. And, and, you know, just on the surface, really cool and compelling, this idea of a moving opera that like it was happening all over the place. But um, to promote it, you know, it was this usual stuff about taking opera out of the stuffy old elitist opera house and into the streets and bringing art to the people, which first of all, that's the way a lot of high art kind of promotional rhetoric works these days. But I, I think it's worth noting how paternalistic and condescending it is. The idea that people need you to give art to them. Um, and that was one of the areas of conflict that came up between the industry and this opera hopscotch and this particular neighborhood that one of their staged scenes happened in, which is the neighborhood called Boyle, Boyle Heights um, in East Los Angeles, which is a, a, a deeply poor, you know, like 95% Latinx neighborhood that has experienced decades of all of the processes of gentrification that urban studies scholars write about. It's so the city disinvested from it, business disinvested from it. It was surrounded by the freeway. It was cut off from the rest of the city. They closed down all the schools. They don't fix the potholes. And so it's just turned into, you know, one of these like racialized centers of urban poverty um, until uh, in the 2000s, this sort of end game of gentrification began in Boyle Heights, which is white artists moving into the neighborhood in search of cheap studio space and gallery space. So that began happening in Boyle Heights. And actually, in that particular neighborhood, um, gentrification has been being resisted uh, pretty successfully for a long time because that neighborhood has a really rich tradition of pretty militant leftist activism uh, these groups that are, that live in the community and that are from that community, they've been, um, resisting these forces of gentrification, protecting tenants from eviction and, you know, helping people, helping the community in all kinds of ways. And since the early 2000s, they've been extremely vocal and public and, um, and unequivocal about what their demands of the city of Los Angeles are. And one of those demands is explicitly no white artists in Boyle Heights get out. They want white artists to pack up and leave. They want them to close those gallery spaces. We do not need you to give us art. We have art. We have a lot of art here. 
and we need to use these spaces for housing. And also white artists moving into a blighted urban area, they represent this first step of this end game of gentrification where they kind of make an area kind of attractive to investment. And then what follows is this brutal wave of corporate development that, that then even displaces the white artists. And then you're left with just luxury condominiums and that's it. And it's just a total wasteland. So the Boyle Heights people are, are furiously resisting these processes. And so I find it really incredible that the industry promotes this idea that they're bringing opera to the people and they're serving L.A. You know, all of their fundraising rhetoric is about how this opera benefits all of L.A. County. And we're going to like make people a part of opera and it's participatory and everything. But then, you know, even just a cursory Google search of Boyle Heights reveals that what a bad idea this would be to stage this like limousine opera in this neighborhood. And indeed, it was a bad idea. So so, you know, they pull the the limousine pulls in for the first performance in Hollenbeck Park and Boyle Heights and all these artists get out and start singing and dancing. And the residents apparently were, you know, baffled and activists quickly mobilized. And uh, as the days of the performance went on, you know, really mobilized and came together and protested. And finally, they had to cancel that leg of the opera. So it, you know, it really gives the lie to um, a lot of their, a lot of the, um, you know, values that their brand is based on. So, you know, they quote Brecht, and they talk about participatory art and all this po- political stuff in their press releases, but, you know, what they're actually doing in the world um, is a great example of the way that that kind of rev- revolutionary rhetoric uh, can be so easily appropriated and, and used to sell us on stuff that is not revolutionary at all, which is just neoliberalism. Like they just made an opera about gentrification and then did it as gentrification. And they didn't know that they were doing that. And I, I just find that incredible. I mean, in, in some ways, that's the kind of... Um, almost like the most straightforward um, bit of analysis in the book um, because it, as you say, the example is just so like kind of crazily obvious, you you know, why you shouldn't be doing this and, you know, how sort of inappropriate it is. But but to kind of conclude, I I suppose that this kind of touches on um, a lot of, you know, people who've engaged with critical theorists like Adorno, it also comes up in, in the end of the book. And I'm interested in in whether you're taking um, these kind of questions forward to, to future writing projects. But, you know, to, to what extent can we sort of salvage something um, from uh, classical music in, in the neoliberal um, era? Or, you know, is it a question of, you know, these kind of contradictions render... Um, all forms of, of kind of op- opposition um, or, you know, revolutionary intent sort of useless? Um, is there, a, you know, something to be said for the uh, protection of the autonomy of, of classical? What what sort of um, thoughts do you have on, on this and, and where does it figure next in your work? Yeah, I, again, this is something that I really continue to struggle with. I think the um, you know, I tried to make, I tried to write a conclusion to the book that was somewhat exploratory and, and also a little bit raw and personal and kind of um, acknowledging some of the personal and political difficulties that I have with, with the implications of some of these arguments and with moving forward from them. 
um, because as always, you know, I have a lot of ambivalence surrounding some of the questions that you just asked, because on the one hand, I don't, I don't want to accept the kind of super hard line, like out adornoing adorno stance that says, you know, there is nothing, nothing is possible within the culture industry that like any type of oppositional gesture is somehow just serving capitalism. I, I want to resist that because it's too totalizing. It suggests that there's, you know, what, then what is there to be hopeful about if there's truly nothing other than this, um, such that even if we think we're making something other than this, we're deluded. I find that so dark and hateful and I don't want to live in that kind of world, you know, but at the same time, almost any time that some sort of musical practice gets positioned as, yay, this is oppositional. Oh, this is, this is critical of power. Oh, this shows us freedom. I actually usually come to the conclusion that it isn't, you know, it doesn't. So it's hard to kind of see your way through these two paths. And so I don't, you know, I don't know if there can be oppositional music, particularly within whatever this culture is that we're calling classical music. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, the, there have been musics and musical discussions and uh, experiments throughout the history of this music that I personally find meaningful and interesting and that have perhaps at a certain time and place been genuinely oppositional. Uh, I don't think that performing Beethoven at Lincoln Center funded by Michael Bloomberg can ever be oppositional in any way, but there's a, a diversity of stuff in between, you know, that we could maybe talk about. So I kind of, you know, in the, in the conclusion of the book, I lay out some thought experiments and I kind of try to explore some ideas of how we might think of music as, as oppositional in some way, but it is, I want to acknowledge that it's true that within capitalism, it's hard to do anything that isn't complicit, you know, as my own, own life, as all of our lives, really most of our lives our testaments to. So, but I will say the music I'm interested in, in this kind of political sense, because the other thing I want to say is I want, I want to make it clear that personally, in terms of enjoyment, I like all kinds of music. I love Beethoven. I listen to pop music. I even like some of the music I write critically about in the book, but what I'm in, what the book is about is this idea of music being politically useful. And there's this weird slippery move where people want to make stuff that they enjoy somehow automatically also be politically radical or emancipatory. And that's an idea that I, I strongly really reject. I think it's at the root of a lot of darkness in our culture. So anyway, the music I'm, I'm politically interested in, politically interested in, is music that, that like does resist immediate comprehension, music that sort of poses questions. Or, you know, I think that I, I am sympathetic to the Andornian idea that, um, that if something is immediately comprehensible, it must be because it's showing you what you already know and that things that kind of destabilize you represent opportunities to get out from under what you already know. And actually it's great that you brought up the revolution happening right now um, spearheaded by black, black lives matter, because a lot of what the activists on the ground are doing uh, is I think destabilizing to, you know, people who are more comfortably within the kind of hegemonic, uh, system of privilege and power that's trying to be that the you know that the uprising is trying to dismantle right now i think that what the some of the ideas that they're articulating are baffling and destabilizing 
in just this way that I'm describing, right? Where it's like, what if there were no police is, is for a lot of people just almost an idea that you can't even, you don't even know how to think of it. It's like that analogy of um, if you ask a flashlight what things in a room have light on them, it will say everything because it can only see what, what it itself sheds light on. So it's like, you know, what if the world had no police in it? And all people can do in response to that question is, you know, picture the existing world just with police pulled out of it and, and it doesn't make sense to them. And actually what that kind of this like abolition movement is, the police is just the starting point, right? Like what it actually is, is this attempt to imaginatively, like radically imagine radically different things than what currently exist. And so I find myself like really resonating in this, um, in this way of thinking about a, a, a potential ways that art and music could offer opportunities for that kind of radical reimagining. And I believe that, I believe that they can, but whether that happens within the kind of structure of classical music, um, you know, meaning like the academic framework for it and the institutional framework for it and the conservatory training tradition, I don't know that I, I don't want to be like too brutal about it, but it's hard for me to picture something genuinely oppositional uh, emanating from that kind of structure. But I certainly think it's possible. Um, Yeah. And oh, so you asked what I'm working on now. And it's kind of it's similarly blobby. You know, I would say I don't know anymore before before the this whole uprising started. I was reading a lot of anarchist theory and black feminism and Marxist queer theory and I was thinking about this, these ideas of dismantling and specifically I was, I'm interested in the kind of like radical self-inquiry and self-criticism and constant oppositional evolution uh, that I think is required right now. And um, so initially I had been thinking about imagination and how like the elite power structure, the kind of like the liberal elites who control classical music and our educational system and much of our government actually like have terrible imaginations they kind of what i build, building on what i just said they can only imagine you know gentle tweaks to the existing system and anything really remotely different from what already exists is like we aren't even able to conceive of it and so i think that this general lack of ability to imagine is is something worth addressing and maybe it sounds childish or something but i feel it very deeply that one of the things, one of the things our experience of late capitalism strips from us is our ability to imagine. It is really hard to imagine outside of those logics. Uh, and to do that, you have to envision and believe that true alternatives could exist. And this sort of requires flights of fancy and imaginative exercises and a kind of openness that we could see being a place where art and music could play an important role. Um, so, but anyway, as for what I'm working on now, you know, everything is in such a holding pattern. I, I guess I'm doing that kind of internal work and reading and trying to participate in, you know, bringing that kind of change into the world in whatever ways that I can. <laughs>